Carmen here. Just jumping in before we get started with the episode, we have a great new website for you. We're really trying to create a hub for everyone who's part of the machine learning and artificial intelligence world to have a place to come together to be part of the same conversation. So we've got articles from lots of different sources. We're pulling in things from archive. We're also trying to start creating a place for people to have conversations between themselves, conversations about our episodes. So go check out the new things that we've got for you. We've got a lot more coming in the next couple of months, and we'd love your input and help in making this a really vibrant place and a really vibrant community. So I hope you go and check it out. But now on with the show. You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. And Neil, this is one of the big conversations that we have sort of not had at all, the show coming from a technical background. But recently you had a meeting about AI and religion. I am fascinated. Tell yeah. me what happened. It was, um, no, it was, it was under Chatham House rules, so I can't sort of say exactly what's happened. I'm not even Who was sure. there and what they said and all that um, good stuff. But it was, yeah, it was an interesting meeting organized by... Um, Ben Glocker at Imperial and um, uh, I think University of Durham. There's a Church of England sort of discussion group there, which was uh, had a few of us get together. But it, it caused me to think about my own thoughts in this space. It was hmm. there were bishops there. A few. It was just a small, smallish group, and I think there's going to be a few more meetings on this. Adrian Weller, I think, is uh, involved in setting stuff up and. Hmm. Um, but so I have two broad thoughts on it, which was the, the opinions I offered. One is, um, and which I've actually written about, um, I think the extent to which we're seeing um, uh, a certain group of people treating AI like what I think of as sort of cartoon religion. Like mm, most mm -hmm. religions, they have a sort of doomsday. Uh, they have a sort of some sense of an all-knowing, all-seeing God. Mm -hmm. um, some sense of the ability to achieve immortality. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe some, some of the, um, I should say I'm not religious, um, but, I, but I don't, you know, uh, I'm not sort of fervently anti the existence of religion or something, but I'm not personally <laughs> religious. Um, and, and the other thing is, is sometimes some religions offer the chance to sort of um, become some sort of demigod, like, like Roman uh, mm. sort of emperors would often be raised to God status. Yeah. And I think in that sense, you know, those map nicely on. And so I wrote a bit about this, but at the time I wrote it, I had Luciano Floridi also wrote some stuff on this, um, onto, you know, singularity as doomsday scenario. Mm. And uh, uh, the um, sort of sense of immortality of potentially like uploading your brain. Uh, right. Or becoming part God by augmentation of yourself through connecting yourself yeah. to internet. Or um, what was the other one? All-seeing, powerful beings. Omnipotence. Omnipotence, yeah. AI overlords sort of right. ruling you. Um, and I think, well, yeah, I don't know. I find it all a bit... Um, I mean, one of the things that in these conversations, often transhumanism comes up, and a lot of it's about mm -hmm. that. My own thoughts on that, I think, as we were discussing a bit the other week, is... The, you know, we, we're, we're interesting because of our limitations. So I'm not someone who's... I, I do find the desires of transhumanism a little bit funny in that way i mean we should always be trying to improve ourselves but to sort of you know i don't know become god somehow is 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 a, is a weird notion to me so i don't think that that side of it is 
as interesting as what I think is the other side of it. Having said that, I think, oh my, there's a lot of people into that. There's a lot of quite wealthy people who are into that at the moment. And I find that mm. kind of disturbing in mm -hmm. some quite deep level. I think quite a lot of people do. Um, because for me, that's not why I'm doing machine learning. I mean, I don't think that the singularity is uh, as uh, feasible as people are sort of suggesting. I think it's a very, it's a very good sort of movie story. Uh, but I think there is... Also, time travel is a very good movie story and you don't see the physicists running around around, so... no. And what was interesting, actually, about, I don't know, it was interesting people who, who were at the meeting who had been in the area for a while had initially worried about those things, but they'd moved on to worrying more about hmm. um, things around data privacy and this sort of thing. You know, I, huh. I was the impression I gained. These sort of things that we, we tend to talk about more, and certainly I've written about uh, in, in the past, and um, uh, we start seeing coming into the press today. Well, not today, but, you know, over the last uh, weeks and so. Um, so those things, definitely that stuff's going up in conversation. But um, which is which I find sort of reassuring because it seems to be the, the the more interesting threat or not threat or, you know, the thing we should worry about more. But back to AI and religion, what I think is really interesting is when religion's at its best, I think religion is an introspective thing. I think it's causing mm. people to ask questions about who they are and when they fit into a grand scheme of things. And I think that there's a side to um, AI that is doing that as well. So mm -hmm. this sort of sense in which as you get a computer to do more stuff that's human-like, you right. actually get closer and closer to, well, there is this tendency for us to go, oh, that's not, intelligence they're not but what we're really saying is the computer isn't the same as us so i right. think that that will drive us to understand how we see ourselves better and asking us to reflect on these questions asking us to reflect on these questions and understand a lot better about humans i mean one thing that came up for example was um someone said well would it be a good idea to have ai that stops genocide and it's like mm. obviously genocide's abhorrent but it strikes me, this is a very interesting question, is like the limit on, so what you're effectively saying, you, it's not clear exactly how you would predict how to stop genocide. Right. I don't believe that you could have a machine that is so all-knowing it could do all that. I don't, just don't think that's going to happen. So the only way you can imagine that would be curtailing some form of freedoms in, in, in many ways. People, you know, it's people that commit genocide, right? It's not... Right. Um, okay, they use tools. Right. But somehow you have to change people. Exactly. And and we currently have a terrible definition for genocide, which gets wibbled around depending on like people's political affiliations and oh, and yeah. opinions and like all sorts of so yeah, if you can't yeah. if you can't define it, how can you how could you build something to predict it well? Well, and and then to and then to prevent it, and and I think that that right. sort of issue is that goes to the heart of a lot of religions with uh, yes. um, you know that oh well if God's good, how could God allow these things to happen? And what you so right. it's almost like a reversal of that question. Can you? And it was coming from one of the attendees that wasn't from the AI direction, more the religious direction. Um, this is a sort of fundamental question, which is uh, will affect, I think, people's thinking about machine learning and affects people's thinking about religion, but from the opposite direction. The, the, the sort of religious one is, well, 
if this thing that is all good exists, why does it allow these bad things to happen? But right. in this case, this is much more like, oh, so can you prevent, can you like provably prevent with some future all-seeing thing bad things from happening uh, without right. taking away, you know, the sort of freedom of humanity? And, and I think that that's, um, it's not clear to me that you can sort of explicitly go in and prevent these things happening without sort of major changes on people's day-to-day -day lives obviously we don't want genocide to happen but to sort of right um but that really those sort of questions get to the heart of what it means to be humans or what it means to be people and what it means to to try to be a good human to create what it means to, to create the human. world that we want as, as opposed to you know what we have right now but i mean very quickly you get back to to the ideas that we have familiarized ourselves with in the public conversation, which have a lot to do with like pop narratives around, you know, I think pre-crime is sort of the easiest one to think of, right? Yeah. You know, you just, you, you get to, you get so quickly to the like, I didn't do it. I was only thinking about something bad. And then the RoboCop says, but in five years from now, you will totally stab him. You know? Well, you can't, I think you just can't predict that far out but i think that you can see some sort of dangerous consequences of these types of thinking yeah. and so i think the one that's closest probably the better way i'm very nervous about the idea of value alignment uh of sort of the idea that you can yeah. get computers to reflect universal human morals they don't there aren't universal, universal values morals that uh right. i can see apply and and you know the evidence we have is that every time someone tried to deploy a universal set of morals genocide did result yeah. so um you know a lot of it seems to be about inclusivity and tolerance and, and oddly um intolerance of intolerance um is, is part of that but um <laughs> right. uh yeah so i think that the you know, initially when I would start getting involved in these debates, I sort of found it strange because I was only got into machine learning to just actual solve real problems. But right. what I found is as I try and explain why machine learning systems aren't what people think they are, then I, I do tend to think about these type of questions. And I think that they are worth addressing in some level. So while mm -hmm. what we will learn, I think, as we get closer to something... Uh, which is doing more of the capabilities we've assumed are more human, then I think we will just, just give a much deeper understanding of ourselves. And I think that that's the sort of much more interesting connection with what try um, religion tries to do, this sort of introspection, uh, reflective nature of religion at its best um, versus the cartoon verses of religion, fire right. and brimstone, over all seeing AIs that are vengeful. And uh, right. I, I find that sort of less interesting. Um, yeah. But I find the introspection side really, really interesting and, and an area where people can come together, whether they're like me, um, who are not religious, um, and, or if they, they, you know, open-minded religious uh, and people and non-religious people can come together and find commonality about what they think the issues are. Um, the thing that I, a term that always bugs me is, is dialogue across faiths because that implies that only religious people get a place at the table. And I think, mm. but, but the idea of dialogue across um, thoughtful people. 
seems good. Some of whom are are religious. And it's not, you know, if just you're not religious doesn't mean you don't have faith in certain things. You you still may have faith in certain things. Um, and I think that that could that could get quite interesting. So it's a conversation I think is very interesting when it's handled in the right way, as as this meeting organised by Ben was. Excellent. Well, we'll have some links to some interesting reading on the topic of AI and religion, and we promise not to post anything about the AI godhead because we assume that you've read all of those Wired articles already. We're taking this in a new direction at our website, thetalkingmachines.com. So, Neil, the listener question that we have this week is a reference to an episode uh, a couple of episodes ago. Um, The title of it was Code Review for Community Change, where we talked about an instance of sexual harassment that had taken place and and how we can sort of look at our own behavior and maybe reform or, or change that. I liked your suggestion about switching the gender of a person you're working with as a possible internal personal bias check. Do you have other ideas in this area? How do I formalize this thinking so that I can apply it to my work when I'm building tools and tests? Thanks so much, Steve. So do we have any other suggestions in this area? Um, it's a good question. I would say you mentally switch the gender, not actually physically. Mentally, <laughs> not actually physically trying to get someone to switch their gender against their will. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I don't know. It's, um, it's a tricky one because it's part of a wider trick of trying to see things also from other perspectives uh, right which i think actually as computer scientists we're not always great at um surprisingly Uh, (laughs) well actually what i really personally i enjoy is i do enjoy trying to do um to what extent i'm successful at these sort of public communication things um or talking to people about trying to distill mentally what issues are around the technology I work on. Mm-hmm. Um, how that really, really helps me is when I engage in that dialogue, I tend to understand much better the perspectives because I have to in order to engage in the dialogue properly. Right. For example, one thing I learned is that the way that the public sort of interpret the term algorithm is very different to the way that a computer scientist would think of the term algorithm. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, the public, um, they... Um, will think of an algorithm as something that does stuff to them that they um, sort of try and resist. Whereas uh, we think of, oh, the algorithm is just a set of instructions I now use to deploy, you know. But it's important to remember their perspective isn't wrong. In fact, it'd probably be the majority perspective. Uh, Yeah, again, this is more of a technical thing, but I I think another thing I found helpful over the years uh, just noticing a way that when I was younger I would tend to um, not jump to conclusions about what someone meant because it seemed clear what they meant in terms of their sentence but um, forget that they may be trying to achieve something different from me or that Mm. they um, may use words in a slightly different way so it used to get me quite annoyed when someone I would respect would say something that i disagreed with um but most of the time after a while i realized actually that they were just saying things from a different perspective mm-hmm, with a and, different priority i mean another one that, that i think i've written about is when you get a uh your reviews back from a conference uh it's very very hard to read them and think about them 
in an objective manner because when they're saying mean things about your stuff often. Right. yeah so what i advise my team to tend to do is try and read them quickly when they first arrive and then 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 give it some time give it 24 hours to let it sink in that what the sort of you know i think if, you, if you're reading something that you find slightly disturbing it's hard to read it properly you sort of jump yeah. down on the bits that are critical right um and uh, i find that helps a bit of distance and space between the thing you're dealing with now these aren't all quite the same thing as the gender flipping but right but they're good they're good things for sort of um taking your perspective and maybe shifting it back or or thinking about a different lens that you could you could sort of shift down in order to be able to look at a at a problem one of my favorite ones that is sort of, I feel like is kind of easily quantifiable. If I'm thinking about what sort of personal bias I'm bringing to a situation or, or a problem or even yeah. a reporting project is to literally stop, take out a map of the globe and put a little pin in all the places that I have visited in the last year. And if those places are only bringing me into contact with people who look like myself or have had similar experiences that I have. I try to find someone that I can talk to, maybe in my friend circle or a friend of a friend who is not from one of those places who's going to be able to sort of give me a check on the things that I'm thinking or bring a different perspective in that I can um, rope in. But I feel like that sort of building, even if it's like a tiny mini team around questions to help you round out your perspective, because um, the human brain can only hold so many identities, right? And so many experiences. So you have to, you know, call on call on the rest of your team to help fill in those experiences. But if your team looks looks like you and has had your experiences, you you need to sort of go outside of that and and bring in other other points of view. Yeah, I think that's right. And um setting the atmosphere right so that you can do that becomes really important. I'm not Yes sure i always it actually goes back to this i think we were talking about chairing meetings when that came mm -hmm. up and uh, how emotionally vested you are in something right um it's very hard to do a lot of this stuff well if you're too emotionally invested in outcome yeah i mean i think another thing uh, that uh is this idea of the silver rule which is what um don't do I unto don't others it. as you would have them not do unto you so it's yes um it's like the uh I think the golden rule is do unto others you'd have them do unto you. But that's um I think the the, the silver rule is um uh better. Yeah, it, it's sort of clearer because um um it's sort of uh a restraint on um your actions you're taking forward. So like do right. unto others you'd have to is like you're going around doing stuff all the time. Right. Uh, this is like stop think. And for me, a lot of stuff works better, and this may be personal, with a bit of stop, think, and wait. Uh, and, and, you know, it's not always possible. And, and sometimes it, it, you taking action on something is important. Taking action at the right time is important. Yeah. But um, yeah. just a little bit of distance if you find yourself... Um, uh, too involved in a situation can also be important. Yes, definitely. I think that that is exactly what it boils down to is a little bit of distance, a little bit of time is always the golden rule and is always uh, a is always something that's going to help you get through a situation 
and um, however you can best find a way to get yourself that distance and that time is going to be the thing that works for you. I think that's right. If you've got a question for Talking Machines, you can email us at thetalkingmachines at gmail.com or tweet us at TLKNGMCHNS. And let's keep this conversation going. I think it's a really important one and we're going to have an impact on, on how we treat each other and how this community functions. on this week's episode of Talking Machines is Bean Kim. She's a research scientist at Google Brain. And of course, we asked her the first question we ask everybody, how did you get where you are? So um, Bean Kim, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with us today on Talking Machines. It's a real pleasure to have you here. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm excited. So you were at the Allen Institute and then MIT before that and now Google Brain. But, but tell us about how you got where you are. What's been your entire path to now to Google Brain? Hmm, I think I should start from why I chose this topic from in my PhD. Um, when I entered my PhD program, I wasn't really interested in applying for a faculty position. I just wanted to do fun things. Hmm. So I begin by exploring robotics oh, applications. Wow. So I made a help making autonomous forklift. Oh, cool. And got a forklift driver's license on the way. <laughs> That's amazing. So you had to drive the robot back. Experience in the wild. Yes, yeah, exactly. very useful. Just backup plan in case the research <laughs> doesn't work out. <laughs> and then I realized this machine learning is very powerful hammer for a lot of things that we're going to be doing as a humanity. Mm -hmm. Then I realized, hold on a second. Do we really know how does this work? And I could see it just exploding and potentially causing unintended harm mm -hmm. in that society. And I was like, oh, this is something that I definitely want to do. Hmm. Who knows what kind of contributions I can make, but maybe if I can make a tiny dent, that'd be really meaningful for me. Yeah. So that's how I started. And then I graduated. It was great. I went to Seattle, Allen Institute, worked there a couple of uh, a year and a half or so. And then uh, Bay Area was calling me. It's nice weather. And I met Brain, it's been really happy. That's fantastic. Excellent. So um, tell me a little bit more about that. I think more and more people are entering um, the, the, the academic rigors of getting a PhD, but with no intention of becoming a professor or like interest in the tenure track. Um, have you seen your experience as unique or do you find that this is also something that other people are doing? Hmm, that's a good question. I haven't run exhaustive search survey <laughs> <laughs> on how people enter a PhD program, but I think it is really common for people to just enter a research field thinking, I want to do something, mm. I want to make something mm. that didn't exist before, and entering program and exploring um uh, and it's not easy exploring and finding what you really want, where your right. passion is. Yeah. And I think it takes time. Um, I can only speak for my own case, which was, I was incredibly lucky. I had amazing advisor, Julie Shaw from mm -hmm. MIT. Mm -hmm. uh, she was very supportive of me exploring, exploring, succeeding and also failing at things that I tried. 
um, and just very being encouraging. And I think that helped me to find what I where I am now. That's amazing. It, and the 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 idea that um, failure is also as encouraged as part of exploration. I think that's really crucial, especially in machine learning and in this community when you're asking ty- these types of questions. Exactly. Yeah. I think without failure, you can't really learn anything. Because you, you like just like machine learning, you need a positive example and negative example to learn that they're better decision boundary. So, yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about interpretability. Um, this, this is the thing that you know got you interested, but is also um, like a huge issue now. Many more people are, are interested in it, and I think it's kind of one of the trends that we're actually seeing this year is this huge growth of interest around interpretability, interpretability versus explainability, all of these things. So what questions are you really interested in right now around interpretability? I think there are two things that I would like to focus. Uh, one is building sort of research framework around the field of interpretability. Mm. There's a lot of misconception um, uh, around the field of interpretability, for example, uh, just understanding the human aspect mm. of this work, cognitive science, mm-hmm. HCI, human-computer interaction, that knowledge is much needed in doing interpretability well. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's something that machine learning as a community, we need more. So mm. building framework around to get us better, one step closer to actually getting some interpretability, working interpretability method um, successful Mm -hmm. uh, and defining things, uh, categorizing methods so that people can, people who are jumping into this field can catch up quicker. Yeah. Uh, That sort of groundwork is is one thing that I'm focusing on. The second thing is um, we all live in, you know, popular deep learning popular era (laughs) yes yes and the time of deep learning (laughs) time of deep learning indeed and uh it's very powerful method Mm -hmm. um i think interpretability methods for deep learning Mm. is slightly different because in many cases you're given to a trained model Mm -hmm. and now you have something that you have to work with right and and questions around interpretability becomes slightly different in that you are not allowed to change anything about the model, Mm -hmm. just inputs and outputs, Mm. or perhaps just the activations, which we don't really understand what's in there. You have to work with these tools to craft explanation, which is different and difficult tasks. And that's something that I've been focusing on since I joined Brain. That's fantastic. So, so given the, the, the framework for interpretability, what do you think is the, the first actionable step there to building this framework? What is the thing that needs to be done first? Good question. Um, I think the first realization we, we should come to as a community is how we are going to evaluate explanations. Mm. Uh, I, I uh, wrote uh, at length about this topic Um, with Finale Doshi from Harvard. Um, But the idea is that when we want to say an explanation is good or Mm -hmm. bad, Mm -hmm. we need to have an end task in mind. Mm. So is it for a doctor? Is it for an engineer who is working with machine learning model? 
what is the goal? Is it to lower the false positive, or is that okay? Is it for something that uh, is less serious consequences like ads? Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's relatively speaking. And having the clear objective in your mind mm-hmm. that you don't have to be able to uh, write down in math. You don't have to. Uh, 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 it's not like you have to do that in order to develop interpretability right. methods. But having a clear end task mm. and developing methods that would ultimately help you achieve that end task is something um, that we need to think about as you begin to develop any interpretability methods. So evaluation is a big deal. Yeah, definitely. So do you think that there's any um, possibility for sort of generalizable interpretability, or do we really need to take it on a case-by-case basis? Mm, Great question. There has been lots of active work going on in order to generalize Mm -hmm. uh, interpretability methods. In particular, Finale and my paper, we talked about talk about how we might be able to bridge these two different evaluation levels. So Mm. first level, you can do a proxy level evaluation, by which I mean you can approximate what makes sense to humans by, uh, for example, sparsity. So Mm. instead of giving you 10 features, if you give me five or less, that's that's better than 10. Um, And then there's this end task level uh, where you, uh, the case by case, having Mm -hmm. a doctor, having an end user. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to create a bridge between these two evaluation levels. How do we do it? Well, we can, the one first step is to uh, unify a language around your work. Mm. So we uh, propose a couple of uh, language, a word, just vocabulary in discussing interpretability method. And what does that do? Well, if you had built on build uh, interpretability method using this red block and a blue block and yellow had worked out, mm-hmm. then if I am trying to do red block with green block, right. then right. I know yellow might work out. Right. Right. So having that sharing that knowledge, I think it's a big step in further improving generalization. Mm-hmm. So so I want to talk a little bit about the, the kind of uh, trend of interpretability. It's This is one of kind of the hot topics this year. Um, and as someone who has thought about interpretability deeply for a long time, do you think that there are um, things that we should be aware of as this becomes sort of, quote-unquote, a trendier conversation that lots of people are jumping into, do you think that there are things that we need to be particularly looking out for or making sure that are always part of the conversation, or are there things that you're worried about that um, might skew the conversation in a way that's sort of more about hyperbole than it is about what's really going on? Oh, absolutely. So I've been thinking a lot about truthfulness Mm. of an explanation Mm -hmm. it's very difficult topic and i'm not saying i have answers to this but it's something that keeps coming up is that when you see an explanation humans are known to have this confirmation bias yes when you see something you pick up something that makes sense to you Mm -hmm. and we've seen this repeatedly in politics and lots of other areas Mm -hmm. uh given the same evidence you can draw complete two completely different conclusions, mm-hmm. and this is this is a problem. And similarly, um, when some explanation methods are 
uh, generated based not based on the model, mm-hmm. but based on uh, some a proxy for what model might do. Uh. It's an explanation, and it might help you gain trust from the user. Right. But it doesn't really reflect how models are thinking. Right. And that discrepancy between methods that kind of likely, but not really what models are doing right. uh, versus methods that are actually what models or reflects the things that models are actually doing. Mm-hmm. Drawing line between those two is difficult, mm-hmm. but something we should be very careful about. Mm-hmm. When you see an explanation, it should also have a claim that says, oh, by the way, this explanation might be approximate, could mm. be wrong in this particular cases. Mm-hmm. I think those are something that we should be very cautious about. Yeah. Otherwise, we run the risk of having contextually dependent explanations, right? Exactly. Exactly. And another thing, speaking of contextually dependent explanation, there are two different types of explanation that we define in the literature. One is local explanations, Mm -hmm. and the other is global explanations. Mm. Local explanations mean that I can explain something based on a particular data point. Mm -hmm. So let's say we're thinking about loan approval uh, classification, Mm -hmm. classifier. And let's say uh, for you, I can provide explanation that says, oh, Catherine's loan got approved because she's a woman. Mm -hmm. And then... And then I can ask, oh, what about Bean? And he can say, oh, Bean's loan got rejected because she's a woman. Mm. There's a, this is type of, this is an explanation that local explanation method might give you. Mm -hmm. Two completely different conflicting information because the explanation is only locally true. Right. Is this the idea around local counterfactual faithfulness from Finale's work? Oh, 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 from the recent paper. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. Yes, exactly. And this, that's a good point. So it's not to say it's not useful, mm-hmm. but it's useful in a certain context, perhaps right. legal case, perhaps a criminal justice case. However, it can introduce this con- uh, conflict and very confusing, immediately very confusing to users, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a global, a local explanations. Mm-hmm. And global explanations... Uh, mean that something that's globally true. Mm. This set of uh, this set of people got their loans approved because they are under between age between this and that, mm-hmm. uh, gender is whatever, and so on. Right. So having the drawings again a clear boundary between these two types of explanations mm. is also important. Just letting that know that hey, this is an explanation, but it's only true for this particular, this person. Yeah, definitely. That's fascinating. So, so as the conversation develops and as more and more people get involved with it, what do you think, uh, is sort of the next step? Where do you think the, the community conversation around these ideas and around interpretability can go in a way that's going to be productive? Hmm. I think a lot of directions that we're taking it to right now are productive. Um, with these cautions in mind, I see lots of great work uh, this year. This year, ICML and all the other machine learning conferences. Uh, lots of great work is getting done. Um, I think debate between people who don't believe in interpretability mm. uh, and people who believe in interpretability that debate is also pretty healthy mm. because it lets us to think. There's this uh, this uh, 
different opinion mm-hmm. and what they care and what they argue for is also very reasonable. Mm-hmm. Like, um, I've heard that some people worry that GDPR or some other legal uh, implications or 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 uh, encouragement uh, might hinder progress of te- technology progress mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In, in the field. Um, and I resonate with that sentiment too and some other concerns as well this topic around truthfulness Mm -hmm. well how do we know Mm -hmm. the explanation you give me is truthful is just any explanation enough it's not Um, i think that debate is really healthy Mm -hmm. and i welcome those debates for anybody who starts to work on this field entering this field has been working on this field Mm -hmm. yeah yeah, I think it's fascinating that you bring up the, the speed and regulation idea because this is something that is sort of looming closer and closer, the idea of formal regulation in this community. Um, and I guess the question is, you know, everyone wants to go fast and break things, but uh, is how what's the margin call, right? How big are the things that you're willing to break and trade off for any sort of speed? So so that that question is always really interesting. And what do you... What do you say to the staunch conservatives who say, we absolutely cannot be regulated, otherwise we will not be able to achieve our goals. We absolutely cannot pause for the ideas of interpretability. Very interesting. I would ask the following question. I mean, I would ask them if they one day go into the doctor's office mm-hmm. and the doctor tell them, unfortunately, the doctor tell, tell, tells them, well, we would have to operate on you today. Mm-hmm. What would you say? Why? Why? <laughs> exactly. Right? Yeah. It's a big deal mm-hmm. getting an operation. Mm-hmm. And the doctor, what if the doctor tell, tells you that, well, you know, I don't know. Your own <laughs> network says that it's the best thing to do. Right. Um, so I'm going to do it. Right. Would you be satisfied with that mm-hmm. response mm-hmm. or not? Right. I think there's a really fundamental question, not only the medical case, but as a society. Yeah in lots lots and lots more serious cases that this question is so fundamental mm-hmm. i don't think we'll be able to live without answering these mm-hmm. questions mm-hmm. at least some set of questions right right because we've reached the point where the societal impacts are you know are are very real yeah and it will get more real day by day mm-hmm. yeah definitely and we want to use it as safe as possible mm-hmm. Just like uh, any other powerful tools that we had uh, implemented and used and developed in the past, we want this tool to be really helpful. Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely. So tell me about what projects you're really excited about that you're working on now at Google Brain. Yeah, um, I have this new work coming out that I'm really excited about. Uh, it's a preliminary work and we're still polish- polishing. Uh, but the idea is that... Um, commonly the interpretability method so far has been working on assigning weights to input features. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. if you have a categorical data, you have features, gender, age, and zip code, and you can assign weights to each of these features. Zip code was more important than the gender, for example. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think that approach is useful in a lot of times, but also limited Mm. because humans 
are trained to think in higher level. Right. Sometimes we can't think in every single granularity. We can only think in, well, you know, gender kind of thing or a particular high level concept uh, like fluffiness <laughs> or, uh, yeah, well, tiredness. This, right. this very abstract concept. Nebulous. Yeah. Nebulous. Yeah. Uh, that, that we reason uh, based on. So this uh, new work that's coming out is about Instead of using the input features, mm. can we use high-level concepts mm. like gender, mm. uh, like race, or uh, color, mm -hmm. or texture? Mm -hmm. uh, can we use those as as a language block mm -hmm. to craft explanation wow. for trained neural network? Um, and it turns out that this is possible. And uh, I, I've been uh, a pretty pretty fascinated to see that you can learn a direction in mm. any layer that represents a concept wow so for example i learned uh corgi concept for those who <laughs> don't know what corgi is it's a dog it's it's adorable they're the dogs that are beloved by the queen right they're like yes. short and fat they have little legs big ears yes when yeah. they walk they're just so adorable i've met some people <laughs> who don't know what corgi is that's incredible we exactly. Need to them. Exactly. So when I I can learn corgi direction in a layer, mm. and when I do deep dream on uh, on this, this, is a technique that brings out what most activates the uh, the particular the layer. The corginess. The corginess exactly. When I do deep dream on this direction that I learn, corgis pop out. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I can do the similar thing with Siberian Husky. Mm -hmm. I can do similar things with texture like knitted, mm. uh, and the sweaters pop out. And this is quite fascinating because previously when you do deep dream, you have to investigate every single nodes or right. neurons in the network right. or random direction in that layer. Whereas now it turns out that it's pretty trivial to learn this direction. Wow. Not to say this direction is unique. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think it is. But there exists a direction that you can learn yeah. that represents these concepts. That's fascinating. So what? So what? Um, so what? Uh, high level, high level concepts are you are you excited to um, activate in layers <laughs> next? Are you going to continue with fluffiness, or do you have other <laughs> other ideas? Oh, great question. Fluffiness, definitely. Oh yeah. I mean, what else would you do? Right? I mean, with, clearly, yeah, yes. clearly. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm interested in applying these methods for fairness application. Mm. So interpretability can be, again, a great tool to surface lots of problem domains where their uh, problems are underspecified. Mm -hmm. And that includes fairness, accountability, trust, and so on. Mm -hmm. And what underdefined means that you cannot write down exact mathematical formula of what you're trying to optimize. Ah. Like build a safe car. Right. What does that mean? Right. You don't know. Hit Don't hit this person in what environment. You can't enumerate and build a unit test. Right. To, to prove that, yes, you built a safe car. So for those underdefined problems, interpretability can help. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm looking for, for this method to help uh, fairness uh, problems. So, for example, high-level concepts like race mm -hmm. or gender mm -hmm. uh, can be can be used to reveal classifiers bias, potentially. Mm. So I can answer questions like, is this, I have an image classifier, right? and I have a doctor class. Mm -hmm. I can ask it, is the gender concept matter 
for a doctor image classification. Mm, mm-hmm. If it is, right. that's a problem. Yes. And surfacing that problem is the first step to fixing it. Yeah, definitely. Fantastic. Awesome. Bean, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with us today. Yeah. It's been really fantastic to talk with you. Thank you so much for having me. That was fun. Bean Kim, research scientist at Google Brain. It's always fantastic to hear someone talk about the collaborations they've had and the work that they've done. And it's it's really just interesting to be able to delve into Bean's work on interpretability and explainability and, and where she sees that sort of larger conversation going. I really enjoyed getting to talk to her. Yeah, I think it's critical, uh, these areas, interpretability, explainability. And, you know, I'm excited how much work there is going and, and how many great people we've got focusing on this area. Yes, definitely. Well, that's it for us on Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. Tune in next episode.